This is a Radio Frimley Park podcast. Frimley Health NHS Foundation Trust covers patients from Berkshire, Hampshire, Surrey and South Buckinghamshire. Over its three main hospitals, Frimley Park in Frimley, Heatherwood in Ascot and Wexham Park near Slough, it handles nearly 900,000 outpatient appointments and treats over 240,000 people in their emergency departments each year. But it's not just the clinical staff, doctors, nurses, surgeons and consultants who work in these hospitals. There are plenty of support staff who often work behind the scenes to keep the hospital running. In this series, we'll be talking to some of those people about what they do and how they came to work inside the hospital. In this episode, we look at the people behind the equipment and the buildings themselves. How do you buy a new CT scanner? Who manages new projects when buildings and rooms need refurbishment? To answer the first question, we're heading off-site to an office space in Frimley. As Steve explains, not all staff are based in hospitals. Hi, I'm I'm Steve. I'm a category manager um, and I look after theatres, orthopaedics and anaesthetics. Um, talk about where we're based, so obviously based off-site. And I suppose one of the reasons you can sort of look at is Frimley Park as a site is, is a fixed building, isn't it? The population and the demographic around that has, has grown considerably. Um, so clinical space within that is at a premium. So um, where I suppose we can locate teams um, who might not necessarily need that sort of direct clinical engagement day in, day out, um, off-site, um, it, it totally makes sense to do that. So um, we're, we're located here now, so yeah. And it's in this office space where we meet Melissa. Hi, I'm Melissa Boston and I work in the procurement department. I am a capsule equipment buyer and we are based um, at Frimley Park, but we cover all of Frimley Health Foundation Trust. So my role can be described as um, all of the capsule equipment. So if you would think about it in the sense of if you buy a car, it's an asset in the the trust that we um, purchase. So all of our main equipment, all of the x-rays, the ultrasounds, the CT scanners, all of those sorts of things that we buy for the trust, but also the chairs that the staff sits on, the chairs that the patient sits on, the beds, everything that that, um, is in the hospital is bought through the procurement team. I've worked for Frimley Park um, Trust for three years now. It was three years in January, so quite a while now. Uh, Before I was working for the trust, um, I was working in the private sector and I've had... um, quite a few various roles um, with a hard FM company, also in insurance. Um, So kind of dabbled in all sorts of weird and wonderful things, actually. (laughs) What drew you to working in this particular sort of field? Um, So it's my first first experience in 
fully procurement. I was always sort of salesy before that. But um, so I wanted to experience what it was like on the other side of the desk. But what attracted me to this role that I did was I was specifically employed to do the Heatherwood redevelopment project. So that was putting everything in the hospital from after they'd built the building. Um, so yeah, that's been a, a wonderful experience bit of a trying experience because it was a huge learning curve. I hadn't been, I'd been in pharmaceuticals before, but I'd never been in the medical um, arena before. So it was a lot of um, learning and hard and fast learning. So yeah, on the job learning. So yeah, um, quite exciting, but also a bit daunting. But you know, everybody's really helpful. So you did get what you needed and when you needed it. What I do now is sort of around, it's very similar to what I was doing. What I was doing was um, fitting out new in the hospital. What I do now is replacing um, re redundant and equipment that needs to be replaced. So all the medical devices, um, also working with the category managers on contracts for medical devices and also the consumables around medical devices for example I didn't I didn't know but uh, if they do any scope work where they're putting probes into you it needs to have a sheath I didn't know that so that's the consumable and sometimes the consumables can actually be more expensive than the medical devices but I am still doing similar roles as in buying new things and learning about the new things as I'm buying them so yeah, so it is along the same lines, just not with the chairs and the beds and the mattresses and all that exciting stuff. So who's making the decisions about what to buy? So Frimley Trust actually have um, trust standards that we use. So we only buy one specific kind of bed and that the trust standards are to do with um, the health and safety department actually being able to train people. So if we if we had 50 different beds then they wouldn't know how to lower the bed you know higher the bed bring the bed up or um, tilt the patient up or help the bed out, the patient out so we've tried to buy the same thing across all of our hospitals so when I say all of our hospitals I don't mean just Frimley, Heatherwood and, and Wexham we've also got Aldershot Centre for Health we've also got Farnham Fleet, Farnborough so we we actually have quite a few little community hospitals so we're trying to keep everything the same so that our nurses can go from one hospital to another hospital and they can just work as if they were where they're normally based so it's trying to keep it standard across the trust. What's a typical day for you in your role? Very busy. <laughs> so a typical day in my in my role is extremely busy. Um, we get a lot of uh, queries coming through to us um, and also uh, what I would do is probably get involved in just not just buying but um, if we wanted to go to market, if we're using a specific device and maybe there's something that's newer and it does more and value-wise it's around the same, we would then facilitate a trial with our end users on the wards and our consultants. But we've also got to get a lot of paperwork that goes behind it. So there's um, forms that need to be filled out. Um, there's agreements that need to be signed. So it is really, you get to touch on so many different things. It's not just placing an order and buying something. 
there's a lot involved and also you trying to keep you know our end users our nurses our doctors our patients those are our customers so we have to try and keep them happy and keep them updated on expectations as well how could you explain the procurement process to somebody who's not familiar with that sort of area or that environment? Okay, so um, we have an ordering system where um, you can usually find what it is. So if it's a pen that you need, you go onto the ordering system and you would raise a request for a pen. So you type in pen and it'll give you a couple of options, a red pen, black pen, blue pen. And then you choose whichever one you want that then goes off to your manager and then they say yes you can have that pen and then that comes to us we'll just vet that um that the pen is and you know that the pen's available or if that pen's not available we'll get you a, a like for like pen from another supplier and then that goes off to the supplier and then the supplier will come and um, some of our suppliers actually come into the trust and deliver the pen to you. So that's the procurement process. And then what will happen is accounts will phone me and they will tell me there's an invoice query because I've got you a pen that was £2.50, but the suppliers invoiced £5. So <laughs> that's the procurement process um, in a very simple um, example. And obviously you, you talked about a pen there being the yes. example, but we're, you're not limited to small consumables. We're talking potentially about large, expensive yes. medical equipment. So, well, the CT scanner that we put in at Heatherwood um, would be a good example to speak about something that was not quite a straightforward procurement process. So obviously we went to the end users. We spoke to them about what they wanted for the new hospital for the CT scanner. And then um, we had to have a look at what was out in the market because you don't buy CT scanners every day. That's a couple of million pounds worth of equipment. So we wouldn't buy like for like because these things change quite um, quite and on quite a fast basis. So uh, if I bought one last year, it would be completely different this year and probably be a bit more expensive. So we went through that process of having to ensure that we were getting as much as we needed as far as all the, all the bells and whistles that went with the CT scanner. And then we had to place the order, but our building wasn't ready. So the order was placed and they started manufacturing. And amazingly enough, as I said, you learn quite a lot of really random facts really quickly. Um, there's a huge magnet. The magnet had to be serviced after the device was ready and waiting to be put into the building. And we had to have that serviced and somebody has to come out every month and just check that magnet and run that magnet, even though you're not actively using the MRI. And then we brought the, mag we brought the MRI and the magnet to put it into the Heatherwood um, building. And then we had to bash walls out and then put them back up around the, the, the MRI. So it was really interesting. It was really interesting. And it's um, what I love about our trust is how um, quickly we react to situations. So you, we are quite dynamic considering we are public sector and we have to comply with forms and things, but we do, we do manage to move how we need to move and get things done really quickly and, and well, because you wouldn't have known that that wall was bashed and if you go and look at the hospital today. So part of the procurement process that I've tried to 
um, work on improving is actually our suppliers coming in and commissioning for us as opposed to project managers and staff members running around and putting the things in each room. So um, that was a lot of the work was done with the supplier commissioning with us. So we didn't actually physically have to push the the MRI machine around, which was a good thing. But yeah, really interesting experience. How do you get the best price? Obviously, as you mentioned, you know, the NHS, it's government funded. Everyone's looking at trying to save money. How do you do that? I'm lucky in my role because I work with different um, category managers. So each category, so I'll have a category manager in procurement that works, for example, on women's health. My esteemed colleague over there, um, he deals with the theatre and aesthetics. So um, my role, I'm quite lucky because I work with all of them. So if I know that I'm getting some, for example, uh, scopes, it could be theatres, it could be uh, women's health, it could be um, one of the, it could be ENT, it could be a, a very, it's across a lot of categories. So what I will do is, because I'm looking at all those different things, I go, oh, this is the supplier. We're using the same supplier for all. That's the preferred products. I would go to that supplier and I'd go, well, we putting if we put all these orders together, would you be able to do something? And the worst case that could happen is they say no. But generally, that's the best way to do it is consolidating all of the different orders together to, and to ask, because the worst they say is no. What's your favourite thing about what you do? Um, my favourite thing about what I do is um, it's actually seeing it in situ. So when I walk past a, say, for example, I walk past a patient's bed, bed or a patient's room, rather, it's knowing that you know, we got that chair and we got that. And also a lot of the equipment, when you see um, the physios actually working with patients, you know that those bits of equipment that the patients are using, we've actually helped them to, you know, have a better recovery and have a better life. So what challenges do you find within your role? Um, I think the biggest challenge that we have in procurement is that uh, we find that our consult some of sometimes our consultants and our wards they they quite proactive in what they need and when they need it but they forget that we're there to help them so sometimes we're overlooked and then we have to unpick um, things at the end of the day that could have been done smarter faster and more smoothly because when we're not engaged, the end users, I do find that on average the end users, as in my consultants, my doctors, my nurses, are more frustrated if we haven't been engaged in the first instance because we can handhold them through the process and then also help them with um, what the deadlines and the ETAs will be and what the next steps are so that they're fully informed um, and that just makes them feel more at ease, except we when you're expecting something tomorrow and you don't realise that there's forms to be signed and all of those sorts of things, it, it impacts your frustration because you're expecting the thing tomorrow and it's only going to come in a couple of months. One final question. You've bought this piece of equipment, it's installed. How do you then hand that over to the Estates Department such that they be responsible for maintaining it and warranties? 
when we when we bring in a piece of equipment, um, we do work with other departments. So obviously we work with our end users, as in um, our consultants and who's on the ward and what it is that they need. But we also go back to our medical electronics departments. The medical electronics department deal with all of the medical equipment that's mobile. So um, they kind of help us choosing it and they also help us maintaining it and they also alert us when things need to be replaced. So we do work quite closely with medical electronics. And then with the estate, so medical electronics is for the mobile things that we have. So your vital science monitors where they take your blood pressure and they monitor your heartbeat and you'll take your temperature. And then things like theater lights, for example, those are plumbed into the building. Those then are maintained by our estates department. Um, And also what I would mention which kind of alerts both of the departments is that they are engaged when the suppliers bring those items because, for example, a mobile medical device will be asset tagged and um, registered with the medical electronics before they put it on the ward so we know what our assets are and where they are. Um, And estates don't asset tag but they will be involved with um, making sure that the installation into the building so the fixtures are as they should be. Thanks to Melissa and the team the hospital is able to update equipment and purchase consumables which as you heard is an ongoing task. But what happens when you need to refit a whole room or even build a new hospital? That's where the Capital Projects team come in. I head off to Frimley Park Hospital to meet Rosie in an old temporary office space to ask her about what they do. My name is Rosie Cheeseman. I'm a project manager in the Capital Projects Department at Frimley Park Hospital. So I've been a project manager for just over two years, um, but I've been in the department for about five years. Um, I worked previously on the Heatherwood Hospital build as a commissioning manager and then worked at various smaller projects at Heatherwood Hospital um, leading up to that as a project support officer and administrator. Um, So I would describe my role as um, we basically manage um, construction and refurbishment projects um, within our main hospital site at Frimley, but also throughout our community, smaller hospitals in the area. Um, We are that sort of central point of contact for our design teams, so the architects, quantity surveyors, mechanical and electrical engineers, um, but also to our end users who would normally be the staff that work in that particular department, so the nurses or the doctors or it could be someone like a porter or someone from housekeeping that would use that space and we are kind of the person that brings all of the information from all of those different stakeholders together and basically makes sure that the project runs to time and to budget um, and that the users end up with the uh, the end result that they wanted. What kind of projects are you working on? Is it one big project that you work for several months or do you find that you're doing multiple things at the same time, juggling which one to do first and which one to do next? Um, So before I moved over to Frimley, which was a few months ago, I was working on just one project, which was the Heatherwood Hospital build um, because that was a really major project. However, now I'm working on probably about 20 smaller, more minor projects, which range from... Something small like um, 
doing an upgrade to one room in particular to make the room more usable. So I've got a couple of smaller projects at King Edward's Hospital in Windsor, um, in the chest clinic and in the ultrasound department where we're just doing works to one room so that they can basically turn it into a space to treat a higher number of patients. Um, then it kind of ranges, goes up to, um, I'm looking at converting uh, this room that we're currently sat in, which was the medical records office, into some virtual outpatient clinic pods. Um, so we're basically going to divide up the space um, to allow clinicians to come in and complete virtual clinics in um, a pod, basically. Um, but we're also looking at slightly larger projects as well. So hopefully at some point in the future, we'll be refurbishing wards G4 and G5. That's a bit of a more of a major project. Um, and also we own a property on the site, which used to be um, privately owned. And we're looking at turning that into a house for multiple occupation for some of our international nurses to live in. Um, so it really ranges. Um, we're working on a lot all at the same time. What's it like working on one big project versus working on smaller projects? Is there a difference? So working on a major project like Heatherwood is quite different because it's really big and you've got a whole team of you working on it together. So you can, even though it's a huge project, you do get to share the load a bit more between a group of you. Whereas on these smaller projects, even though they are smaller in value and size, you are the only person from our team really working on that project. So everything falls to you and it's it's not any less work than working on a major project at all. And because you're trying to balance it with so many other small projects, it's, yeah, it's probably about the same amount of work, to be honest. What's a typical day for you? Are you on site a lot? Are you in the office? How does it pan out? Typical day, um, I mean, no day is the same, but most of the time it's kind of a combination of... Um, sitting at a desk doing emails or um, Teams calls. Um, but also a lot of our time is spent going around the site. Um, so meeting with the design team on site um, to look at the locations of where you're proposing to do a project um, or taking contractors around that are possibly going to tender for the work. Um, yeah, it's yeah, you could end up doing lots of steps. <laughs> Um, so the best memorable moment that I can think of is probably the first day that we opened the new Heatherwood Hospital. Um, it really sticks in my head because we'd basically lived in the building for the last six months, kitting it all out with the equipment and furniture, getting it ready for the first patients. And that first day actually seeing patients in the hospital was really quite strange, actually, but also, it was a really good moment to think like we'd finally done it um, and that we were finally open to the public. Uh, another memory that sticks in my mind was about three months before we opened the new Heatherwood Hospital, coming back for our first day after the Christmas break and finding that all of the waiting room furniture from the main atrium had gone over the Christmas period because there'd been a flood um, and it was quite disappointing to come in and see it was a bit of a shock to the system <laughs> that we were going to have to do a lot of work to sort of fix the issues that the flood had caused in the atrium um, before we could bring all that furniture back in but we got there and we still opened when we were planning to open after that. 
You describe setbacks there that may happen with projects. Things don't always go to plan. Do you think that's a real characteristic that you need to be able to overcome obstacles as part of the role? Yes, definitely. I think you need the ability to work through challenging problems um, because no project is simple. Every, Every single one will have something that goes wrong or... It might not even go ahead in the end. You may have worked on a project through the design stage, but then once it gets to sign off, it might not get any further than that. Um, And yeah, I think you just have to be able to work through those kind of things and carry on because there will be lots of projects that will get to the end and the end result will be successful. So how are projects picked? And I guess importantly, how are they paid for? Um, So projects are normally picked. Um, So you get the departments, if they have a particular need um, within their department, they will basically come to capital. They'll fill out a capital request form, um, which basically gets considered by our capital planning committee. Um, They then make a decision on um, which projects to proceed with. um, And that is chaired by our director of finance, Nigel Foster. And it also has members of the team from Capital sit on that board, um, members from finance. um, And they basically prioritise the various project requests that come through and make a decision on which ones go forward. So the funding for Heatherwood, um, because we built a new hospital um, to the rear of the existing site, it meant that we could sell um, the site that the uh, that the old hospital was on. Um, so that sold, got sold to Taylor Wimpy for building um, a housing development. And that basically part funded um, the build of the hospital, which was really useful. You talked about earlier how you're working on a fit-out of new rooms. Could you sort of talk us through that process of how you would go into a room and assess and what you need to uh, do? Yeah, we can do look at this room now. So, um, yeah, as I said earlier, this room currently is an open plan office space that was used by the medical records team. Um, it got identified as a potential space that we could move our outpatient virtual clinic pods into because the current building they're in is going to be demolished at some point in the new year. So we needed to find a new location for them. Um, So once this room was identified, um, I got an appointed a design team. So that included an architect, um, a mechanical and electrical engineer and a principal designer um, and a quantity surveyor. We then... Basically, they all come to the space. Um, We send them all the drawings that we've already got on file. And it basically starts with a bit of a feasibility study. So working with outpatients who are the users in this current project um, to understand what exactly it is that they need from this space. And the architects will draw up their initial layout ideas that you could achieve in the space we've got. Um, And then we meet with outpatients in this case who are the users to basically establish if that layout or we present option of layouts to them um, and they'll basically let us know what would work best for the service and then from that we then would proceed through the more detailed design stage so the architects and the mechanical and electrical engineers will do their complete designs for the space and again go through another review process And then at that stage, we'd then go out to tender for a contractor to actually complete the works. Um, 
And once all that's got signed off, then um, you're good to go to actually start the, the refurb works. Your job encompasses a number of different things. If you were trying to explain it to somebody who uh, no, didn't know what you did, um, do you think there are any misconceptions, misunderstandings about what they think somebody from Capital Projects does over what you actually do? I mean, I'm sure a lot of people aren't probably even aware that our department exists, <laughs> especially people outside of the trust. Like, I didn't know there were teams like this that existed until I was part of it. Um, but I think something that's possibly misunderstood within the trust is I think we're kind of just seen, we're seen as estates, which is a completely separate department to us. So estates more deal with the day-to-day upkeep and running of of the estate basically whereas we more deal with if yeah you need to refurbish or build something new that's more what our area covers but we do work really closely with the estates team and they support us a lot too. So would you mind telling us how you wound up where you are today what drew you to this career this job what's your background? Yeah so um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do um when I was at school um but I did a geography degree went traveling came back and just actually found a temp job which was at Heatherwood Hospital in their physiotherapy department on their reception doing um appointments and receptionist work um and then it was the staff in that department that encouraged me to look for other jobs um at the hospital so that I could stay um and that was when I found the admin role in the capital projects department um and then I've just been given the opportunities to progress with my career within the department and I've really enjoyed the work um so yeah it's just kind of gone from there really and finally what is it that you love most about your job what is your favorite thing about what you do um my favorite thing about my role is probably with um working with the diverse range of people that we get to work with um so we work with not just the clinicians um but also support staff throughout the hospital from various departments and then we also have our design teams external to the trust um who we work very closely with to develop designs for our projects um and then the contractors that actually do the works for us as well um that's probably my favorite part Rosie and her teammates deliver a lot of projects across Frimley Health Trust, from small to large, and it was brilliant to hear what it's like to deliver them. A hospital has thousands of rooms over multiple floors with tens of thousands of pieces of equipment. How do you track where everything is and when it was bought? That's a job that Keith has been heavily involved in. I've come to meet him in the estates office found at the back of Frimley Park Hospital. Hello there. I'm Keith Maynard. I'm a member of the Estates and Facilities Department across Frimley Health Foundation Trust. I'm based at Frimley Park Hospital, but I also get out to our other hospitals, the one at Ascot, Heatherwood Hospital, and also to Wexham Park. Plus, of course, we've got a few other satellite sites down in Aldershot and Farnham and Fleet. Tell me a bit about your role. What is your job title and what do you do? Okay, my my job title um, here within the Estates and Facilities Department is actually Construction Supervisor because that's where my discipline comes from, everything to do with uh, buildings, civil engineering, mechanical, electrical works. 
But particularly over the last four years, what I've been doing is establishing an asset database, which sounds rather grand, grand, but what it means is all of the equipment that is necessary in the background to keep the heartbeat of these hospitals going. For instance, an asset could be anything like uh, a radiator, it could be a, an air conditioning unit, it may even be a lamppost somewhere out in either the car park or on one of the roads. And so what I've been doing with my colleagues here in uh, estates and in capital projects is evaluating how many assets we've got. We've got hundreds of thousands of assets within each of the two in within each of the three hospitals. And within each hospital, we've maybe got, particularly at Frimley, we've got over 5,000 rooms. So you have to be able to establish where the room is, what its use is, before within that room, you can establish what assets that particular room contains. So you, you mentioned, obviously, there's hundreds of hundreds of thousands of different things in this hospital, all of which needs to be catalogued. Does that mean you're uniquely identifying each asset or do you uniquely identify an asset within a room? Okay, a little bit of each. Um, each asset has its own unique reference number, just like every patient coming in here has their own unique identification code. So not only a patient's name, date of birth and an address, but similarly for the assets, the pieces of equipment, they have a unique reference number that accommodates all of that information and data relevant to the asset. And the reason that we record all the assets, we need to know what we've got, where it is, what it's doing, if it fails or falls over or needs replacement, where is it, what is it, how much will it cost, so that we then know that we can unplug the old piece and plug in the new piece. With all those different assets, I assume some of them come with warranties and you need to track those warranties. So is that in a big list that pops up and tells you, oh, we need to service this MRI machine? Yes, indeed. So if you have a piece of equipment that is new, it will more than likely come with a warranty, just like you would at home get a washing machine Hopefully it doesn't uh, croak on the last day of its warranty. But if we've got a piece of equipment with its warranty, typically 12 months, some pieces have two years, three years, five years, seven years. And we're even getting to a stage where some equipment has a lifetime warranty. However, if that piece of equipment fails, might be in the night, might be on a weekend, might be during the day, it needs attention and the people who give it the attention are the people within the Frimley Health estate team. They would look at that equipment and decide what needs to be done. They can't then wait to go back to the manufacturer to get that equipment replaced because the manufacturer may take a day, a week, a month, a year to do something about it. We need to get that piece of equipment back online immediately. So really, we're not only just maintaining that piece of equipment. So like your car, 
may come with a seven-year warranty, it is incumbent to actually maintain it. And if something fails, what do you do? Do you go back to the manufacturer or do you call out the AA or do you take it to a garage? There's some intervention and it's that intervention that the Estates and Facilities Department carries out to make sure that the equipment keeps going. Now, if they were to do that on a piece of equipment, say, four, five, six times in a year, somebody should be asking the question, is it any use anymore? Is it at the end of its life? Has it got an inherent fault? Uh, do we need that anymore? Should we replace it? And therefore, the asset database gives us that opportunity to look at the history of the individual piece and say, right, we'll replace it or not, we'll repair it, because it depends upon whether it's economically or even environmentally friendly to replace it. Within the hospital, there are these tags, like visible tags that most patients may have seen on walls that sort of are linked to the system that you've referred to, these asset tags. I think they're GLNs. Correct. Could you talk about what they are and what okay. they mean? Under a, an initiative from the government, which was set up about five years ago, the government requires all of their public buildings, and especially hospitals, to have these unique registration documents for each room. It's called a global location number. Each room or space, so it could be a room, it could be a nurse's desk within a corridor, it could be a corridor itself, it could be a plant room, it could be a space where equipment is located externally, then that needs its unique reference number. But to build up that reference number, we need to work out where precisely that space is. So what we do, we start at a high level and we say, okay, it's Frimley Health Foundation Trust. Great. Which hospital? Okay, it's Frimley Park Hospital, FPH. Okay, which building is it? Because we've got dozens of buildings here at Frimley. It's not just one building. It's uh, the original old building that's had pieces added to it and pieces removed, demolished. So we work out which building it is, building number one, two, three, four, five onwards. Once we've decided which building it is, we then say, well, which floor level is it? Is it ground first, second, third? Is it the roof? At Frimley, it's a little bit difficult. We give them unique reference numbers. At Wexham, for instance, it's a lot simpler. We just say ground, first, second, roof. But at Frimley, because of these reference numbers for the floors, we have to include that. What we then do via the drawings, the layout plans, and I'm sure people have seen the fire plans throughout the hospital, which show the escape routes. Each room has its own unique door number. And there's a little white label on each door giving that door number. So now we've got Frimley Health Foundation Trust. We've got Frimley Park Hospital. We've got building number 16. We've got floor level 1-020. 
We've then maybe got a room, uh, 29-33, and then we can deploy the GLN. And these are the yellow labels inside each room, and they're located normally where the light switch is. That is a unique reference. It's a barcode. It's got a, uh, the description in alphanumeric. And then it's from there that anybody in the hospital can say, hey, we've got a problem here. They put the call into the facilities help desk and we say, where are you? Can you see a yellow label? And we know where they are. And they know what they're talking about. If we've learned about uh, electronic patient record, EPR as it's known, the idea is that each patient has a unique reference number. So our patients, surreptitiously, are known by a barcode. And when they go into a hospital or a department uh, or a ward or a clinical space, they, the patient, will be then tagged to that space. So the particular nurse, receptionist, consultant, specialist, doctor, who themselves will be uniquely tagged, will tag that patient to the room. To extend that would be you as a patient with your unique reference number in a room with a GLN, whatever process is carried out on that patient, say it's just taking their temperature, then that information would be recorded into the database. But maybe the device that has been used to record the temperature also has its unique reference number. Or it could be something like if they're taking a sample of blood, then the uh, syringe and the container for the blood would be tagged to that person to that nurse, to that room. So everything is joined up. I assume that's for the benefit of being able to track um, potentially issues with batch numbers of certain devices. And it's to reduce risk. And the risk is that um, the information for a particular patient could get misconstrued. This way, it's really a, a foolproof way of tagging the information to get it as accurate as possible. The initiative for the GLNs in hospitals is called Scan for Safety. So it's in the word, Scan, Safety. Uh, it's to ensure the safety of the patient. What they did find within the NHS was that patients were getting lost. Not lost themselves, but lost in the system. So they were turning up maybe having a blood test and then told to wander down the corridor, sit somewhere or have another process carried out on them. And they got lost and nobody knew where they were. And the system didn't know where they were. So it was a little bit disconcerting, it wasn't safe. There was a risk associated with that. And so by doing this electronic patient record together with the GLNs and the tagging of all assets, it not only makes it safer, but it makes it quicker. Should we take a look at some of the areas that you range around the hospital placing these tags and maybe... Yes, let's, uh, let's do that. Let's go into a 
plant room, which uh, just to, to re remind us that we are, we're here at Frimley. So we'll then be going into a particular building. We'll then be going to a particular floor level. We'll then be going into a particular plant room, which has its own room number. We'll be going into that plant room, which has its GLN, global location number. And then we'll look at the equipment within that space where we get down to the next level of detail, which are the asset tagging labels. Okay, so we've come out of the uh, illustrious estates department with the uh, restaurant overhead. And we're now walking past what is called a CHP, Combined Heat and Power Plant. So this is where we generate our own heating and electricity and recover heat uh, to feed into the hospital. So now going inside the hospital, we're going to be working our way towards the front of the hospital to access a plant room. Right, we're walking out onto the roof now. Welcome to another bit of my world. So you can see all of this equipment which has been tagged and is now included in our asset database. And even over the last three years, as we have tagged everything, it's been ripped out and replaced bit by bit in different areas, uh, either replaced or added to. So the use of the database is really good because we can track everything. And we've almost created um, a 3D virtual model of the hospital. Of course, today, when you build a new hospital, you start from a 3D model and build the hospital to the model. Right, so we're about to go inside what is called A4 Boiler House. That's the old name that was given to it when the hospital was built in the mid-70s. We're actually still Frimley Park Hospital. We're up on the... Uh, the roof and we're going to go into room number 11901. Mind your step. Do you know what I'm, we're stood in front of here? This Is this still working? It is indeed still working. Yes, it's a very good question because I can see you you're smiling about this, Ben. Um, yes, it's one of the, uh, the boilers that uh, was manufactured, as we look at the label, <coughs> 1971. So it was manufactured at that time to, to, uh, to become a component here for the, took three or four years for the hospital to be built. Uh, and this is one of four, we can see number four written on it, boilers in different plant rooms. Of course, we, we create the heating slightly differently today we've got other uh, means of heating the reason for it being a boiler <coughs> synonymous with the name is hot water and we need hot water for two things one we need it for heating central heating via pipes and radiators but we also need it for hot water 
for washing. So that could either be uh, heating and washing in, say, a uh, food prep area, or just hot water in showers or sinks or baths, wash hand basins throughout the whole of the hospital. So this fellow is still working. It looks uh, very much as though it belonged to maybe Doctor Who, Time Lord in another period of his life. This has got a number BP-1003653. And if in our asset database we were to look at that, we would find things out like uh, its number, its date of manufacture, what pressures it's tested to, uh, how much it would cost to replace, how often it has to be serviced, um, and indeed if there are any health and safety issues associated with the boiler. And we're adding to all of those asset fields, all of those fields within the database, because we may find something one day where we say, oh, we didn't know that, we need to record a bit more information. To describe the room being here, there's on the, I would say on the right and the left side, it looks more sort of electrical, lots of switches and light up buttons. And then in the center, this big sort of metal style boiler, which wouldn't look out of place in a steam engine. No, it's certainly bigger than a caravan. And, and yes, if you were to put wheels on it, it could be indeed a steam traction engine. But you're right, on each uh, side of the room above us, on the ceiling and around, there are lots of uh, electrical panels. These are control panels. Start, stop, run, do something different. But also then connected via the control panels to the boiler is a series of pipes. Some of them are bare pipework because they can be just bare metal pipework. Others are nice and shiny and bright because they're covered in insulation because we want to keep the heat uh, within the pipes if indeed they're associated with the boiler. In other rooms, we have the opposite of a boiler. We have a chiller, which would be like a big fridge. So it could be like an ice cream van on wheels, if you like, it's a fridge. But we still need control panels, we still need pipes, and they would be insulated to stop us losing, and this is a strange word, the coolth, C-O-O-L-T-H, stop us losing the coolness, the coolth, from within the pipes out to the atmosphere. Uh, we're looking at a, uh, a pair, a double set of pumps, all bright, shiny, new paintwork. Uh, everything else in the room is covered in years of dust, but we can see those pumps and they've got little purple lilac colored labels on them, referring to the motors and the pumps. They're fairly new. And then just to the side of them is the old pair. So what we have to do is look at the purple lilac labels on the old equipment, record the number, go into the database, retire those from the database, and then supplement the new ones. Why are they lilac? The reason they're lilac is that when we started the asset tagging process, we spent a lot of time, it sounds 
a little bit um, detailed, but there were reasons for it being detailed. We needed the labels to be big enough to read visibly. On the labels, there's a 2D barcode, the one that we're familiar with on a tin of beans in a supermarket, the uh, broad and narrow stripes and spaces. But also there's a square code on there. That is the QR code because that contains a lot more data and information which one day we'll be able to incorporate in the database. The electronic database that we use, which is called Planet FM, Planet Facilities Management, doesn't currently, seem strange, doesn't currently have the ability to have a QR code, but it can get the 2D code. So the labels have got both of those, so we're future-proofing. The reason for the color, we looked at all the other labels, and I'm sure now that people will look around them and see labels on absolutely everything, on a heart monitor, on a blood pressure monitor, they're all different types of labels. We decided we'd go for a color, and one day in our facilities office within the estates department, uh, our deputy contracts manager came in and was wearing a rather delightful purple top. So we said, okay, we will have purple or lilac labels. So those are lilac for inside. What we then found with the design of the labels they're not very good in ultraviolet light outside. So we designed another label, the same information printed on them, and that's a metallized label that is ultraviolet proof, but naturally the outside ones are a little bit more costly than the ones on the inside. I think uh, as, as we come in to land today, um, I'll just tell you something else that we've been looking at, which comes out of the asset management. We're, we're looking at uh, the outside of C block, and we can see on the wall some condenser units, which is the outside part of some heat pumps, air conditioners. What those units do, it's actually just comfort cooling. They just blow out cold air on the inside of the rooms. Or indeed in the winter, you can turn the knob and it will blow out hot air. So here at Frimley, we've maybe got 1,500 of those individual units. They all run on refrigerant and even Today, Friday the 13th, um, you will hear uh, sounds going round the, the country about the change in refrigerants. Uh, particularly, they were talking this morning about inhalers, how inhalers, people's personal inhalers, are powered by CFC, car carbon fluorohydrocarbons, uh, gases. Well, those air conditioning units similarly have hydrocarbon type gases in them. Some of them from units that were maybe installed 15, 20 years ago are not very friendly to the atmosphere. So here at Frimley, because we've got the details of all of these air conditioning, split air conditioning units, 
we could look at our database and say, right, which ones are now um, really not very friendly environmentally? Uh, and should we decommission them and um, replace them with the new, a new unit? By replacing with a new unit, we would be compliant with current regulations. The units manufactured in 2023 are the latest technology. They'll use less power. They'll be more efficient. They will use electrical energy. And so we could put more and more of these units in, replacing the old ones, but also adding new ones and turning off gas-fired hot water radiators. So it's a decarbonisation exercise that we could carry out. And as well as looking at the units, we're talking to specific manufacturers so that we can get a good cost on these units because of the volume that we're using. But even better than that, we can get an extended warranty and we know that the intervention for maintenance can then be less and less. So it's a win-win all round. Keith was really passionate about his work and I enjoyed touring the hospital with him. It's amazing to think all those individual objects in the hospital are being tracked and audited and it really gives you an idea of the scale of the task managing it all. That brings us to the end of this episode, which has only covered a small section of the hundreds of staff working within the hospital to keep the building and equipment working. Join me next time when we'll be speaking to more staff and volunteers as they work inside the hospital. <laughs>